Welcome, friends. You're listening to Conversations with Consequences. This is the weekly radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, where you get witty and charming conversation about the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers of our time. If you're listening on the radio, you're listening at 11 a.m. on Fridays on the Guadalupe Radio Network. And if not, you're listening for free wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe to our show at the Catholic Association org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and today I'm joined by my colleague at the Catholic Association, Ashley McGuire. She's in D.C. and I'm in Miami. Hi, Ashley. Hey, Gracie. We are connected by the marvels of all sorts of IT um, that don't always work out, but they're working out today, right? Yes, thankfully. <laughs> today we're going to have a really interesting show. Um, We have a great guest who, Ashley knows him personally, I haven't met him, but I'm looking forward to meeting him. In fact, he's coming down soon to our uh, private school, our little parochial school here in Key Biscayne, where I live. We've we've asked him to come down and give us a talk on why marriage matters to children. And by this, you might um, understand that he's an expert on marriage, all sorts of things about marriage. His name is... Dr. Bradford Wilcox, and he is the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He's also a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and he's published many studies on marriage, parenthood, cohabitation, and also a lot of studies on the way that marriage, gender, and culture influence the quality and stability of family life in the United States. He's been published all over the place and he consults with large companies um, on fertility and marriage trends, companies like Nestle and Procter & Gamble. You know, they want to know who's having babies, when, and how many, <laughs> so they can be prepared. And you know him, Ashley, from, for, from a while back, from your start as a journalist, as a, as a, a cultural warrior. Right, yeah. So I've been writing for um, the Institute for Family Studies for a while, writing sort of from the perspective of a young woman who um, is having children and started having children a lot younger than sort of my demographic um, with a shared interest in um, promoting marriage as something that benefits women, men, children, and society. And, and you know, to talk about marriage, we don't have to take, this is the Catholic Association, this, this is, a, I guess, a Catholic radio show, but there's no reason to talk about marriage from a religious perspective when we when we need to talk about the value of marriage. Isn't that true? Yeah, and I think, you know, in our discussion with Brad, we'll really get into the, the fact that um, I think people on all both sides of the political spectrum and all different faith backgrounds are, are really starting to understand um, that, you know, just how impactful marriage and, and stable families are uh, for everybody. Yeah, I think... Uh, maybe when when the marriage when the marriage thing started to fall apart a, a few decades ago in the United States and the West, m- religious conservatives were the ones who were sort of standing up and saying, "No, stop! This is not a good idea." But I think everyone there's a lot a lot of people joining joining religious conservatives uh, because they're watching um, they're watching the the side effects the the evil side effects of of the abandonment of marriage. So you know, with that, why don't we call in? Uh, Dr. Wilcox, who is an expert on on all things marriage. Dr. Brad Wilcox, welcome to Conversations with Consequences. Uh, It's great to be here with you guys today. So we were telling our listeners, uh, first of all, about your expertise in the the fields of marriage, uh, family, um, and all things, (laughs) all the way those things influence the culture of the United States. 
Um, but maybe you can tell us uh, first to start, what what brought you uh, to this position where you are concentrating so hard on these family structures and how marriage impacts culture? Um, well, I was raised by a, a single mom, and I think really it was actually in college here at the University of Virginia that I began to think more deeply about my own experience growing up, about the importance of fathers, and about the way in which marriage tends to tie uh, dads more closely to their children. So, you know, that kind of life experience was a, a big motivation for me in thinking about how marriage and fatherhood today uh, matter for uh, for our kids uh, in the U.S., you know, in, in 2019. So going from how these things matter and in a personal experience, how did how did your life, uh, your scholastic, your your life at school, your your uh, academic life lead you to your position at the National Marriage Project? Well, I did a postdoc um, both at um, Princeton and then also at Yale University, um, studying the role of religion and family life. And then as it got kind of uh, established here at UVA, University of Virginia, uh, I focused more and more directly on marriage and child well-being. Um, and what happened was that David Papineau, uh, who was the co-director of the National Marriage Project, it was then at Rutgers, uh, was retiring. And I asked him if he wanted to pass the reins um, to me here at the University of Virginia. And he said, yes, he, he said that'd be great. So um, that was sort of the the step that led to uh, the National Marriage Project migrating from Rutgers University down here to U- UVA. Um, Brad, this is Ashley. So in, in the many years that you've been um, studying marriage and family life, um, and you've really sort of explored it from so many different angles, and uh, I think one of the reasons you've been a really effective voice in the culture, um, not just in a sort of a corner niche, but like in the mainstream culture, is um, the way that you've explored things from all different angles and your research has really sort of uncovered things and sort of put to rest misperceptions. What are, what do you think has been some of the most interesting uh, findings you've uncovered in your research and what has resonated the most? What has created the most sort of ripples? Well, I think my focus on the class divide in American marriage and family life, uh, um, I published a report called "When Marriage Disappears," and that focused on the way in which marriage becomes um, more fragile, weaker among not just the poor but among the working class. Um, and that report um, got a lot of attention in, in NPR and many other venues. Um, and so I think since then I've been thinking a lot about and trying to figure out ways to bridge this class divide in American family life. Um, and you know, I think one thing that I've, that I've done is to try to figure out how a lot of progressive concerns, you know, things like concerns equality, for instance, or the, um, the poor state of the American dream for many poor children, how these kinds of progressive concerns connected to what's happening in our families. Um, so it's, you know, it's research like that, findings like that, that I think help at least some people, some open-minded people understand and recognize that a lot of progressive concerns uh, intersect with the strength, the stability of marriage and family life here uh, in America. 
What do you think are some of the most standout data points on that front? I mean, I think, you know, having been somebody who's written for the Institute for Family Studies blog for many years and, you know, reads a lot of this with great interest, one of the one of the statistics I've always found fascinating is, and I, I can never quite get it right, something to the effect of um, children born into a home, uh, a broken home, have something like an 80% chance of uh, growing up in poverty or, or living in poverty as adults or... You know, what are some of the, you know, three or four most sort of striking statistics on that front that you've encountered? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've seen is that kids who grow up in intact married family are about twice as likely to graduate from college, you know, controlling for a bunch of uh, other factors. Um, that 97% of uh, millennials today who have um, gotten some kind of education, um, at least a high school degree, worked full-time and married before having any children are um, steering clear of poverty and um, more than 80 percent of them are in the middle or upper class as uh, millennials so that just sort of shows how kind of following a classic what's called success sequence you know still provides a path towards realizing the american dream um, is is also think a kind of a striking statistic um, and then, as I said before, both I and Raj Chetty, who's now at Harvard Economics, have found that what's happening in our neighborhoods family-wise is one of the top predictors, not, not only actually of economic mobility for poor kids, but also of incarceration rates uh, for boys. So, you know, what we're seeing is that on a variety of levels, on the individual level, the household level, the neighborhood level, um, you know, what's happening in terms of marriage matters a lot for kids adults, uh, and communities. And those are the kinds of statistics that illustrate, you know, um, how all this uh, stuff impacts um, our kids, adults, and communities. Don't you find that progressives and liberals, they reject very much the idea that marriage um, is uh, a sort of uh, a panacea no, for all these cultural ills? Uh, like um, the, the ones you just mentioned, um, any kind of social dysfunction, especially for children, uh, that marriage is an amazing way to treat all these things, right? Like reinvent, uh, reinventing the culture of marriage or, re or reinvigorating it or making marriage, again, um, seem accessible, something that anyone can achieve, even people who are, are less, than, less than rich or people who are, who are poor. Um, but liberals and progressives resist that because their narrative is that um, what keeps people down is racism and, and income inequality. Can you, do you find that your, that your research and, and the way that you, point, that you point to these connections, do you find that you could get people um, on that side of the, of the thinking divide um, to, to start to love marriage again as a solution? Yeah, it's it's a profound, um, I think, challenge facing us as a country. We did a piece um, on family studies, uh, familystudies.org, on October 10th, Wendy uh, Wong and I did. And we looked at how liberals and conservatives look differently at marriage. And are also much more, um, there's, there's also big disparities in terms of their odds of being married. So we find that only 33% of liberals would agree that marriage is needed to create strong families, and that compares to 80% wow. of conservatives, so a huge that, divide. That's a shocker. That's a shocker to me, the 33%. Yeah, it's, it's huge. And then in terms, of the, in terms of looking who's married today, it's 62% of conservatives. This is adults. 
and only 39% of self-described liberals are, are married. So that's also a huge divide. So in terms of both practice and that's amazing. Uh, you know, belief um, or belief and behavior, we have seen, I think, a pretty major uh, ideological divide um, grow up in the last, you know, four decades or so. Um, and that's problematic because marriage, you know, I don't think should be an ideological issue. It shouldn't be a religious issue. Um, marriage is seen in many different contexts, obviously, from China to India to Egypt to uh, to the West. So it's not a Christian thing, um, and I don't think it's a conservative thing. It's a human, <clears throat> I think, thing, an institution that's really obviously served the welfare of kids and adults um, across many different cultural contexts and historical time periods. So, yeah, I think the challenge facing us is can we make arguments um, – tell stories that will make folks in the middle of the, um, the ideological continuum and folks who are sort of on the, on the center left liberals, <clears throat> but not necessarily progressives, um, you know, more open to sort of, um, appreciating and talking about the value of marriage. And one key point here is that college educated Americans are much more likely today to, to get married and to stay married, you know, even if they're obviously, you know, more liberal minded. Um, I think the challenge is trying to sort of basically say to them, you know, look, folks, what you're doing in your private life actually has some real value for the larger society. And can we talk about this in public? So practically, that means like encouraging doctors, encouraging school superintendents, encouraging executives in the C-suite who overwhelmingly enjoy strong and stable marriages to be more open, you know, with their employees, with their students, with their patients about how marriage and stable family life more generally is so helpful, you know, both to them, but to the country and the communities more generally. In my experience with liberals, um, and some of them are very close to me, people in my family, my my married family especially, um, in my experience, they feel and they've said this to me that they um, that they don't that that to them it seems like they're when they speak about marriage to people who are poor or minorities. I'm a minority, and my my married family aren't minorities. Um, that they don't feel comfortable saying that because they're they're asking them to do something that they're not capable of, as though marriage is this unattainable good. Or attainable only by certain classes. It's almost like a reverse bigotry. It's been my experience uh, with liberals, um, and I try to explain to them. I say, "Well, you know, we Hispanics, we're, or or we're, or other people of other people of uh, other races, are just as capable of achieving marital stability, you know. But maybe we live in cultures and and are being educated by people who uh, tell us that that's not necessary anymore, or that that's not where our happiness lies. What do you think of that? Does, is that kind of a, a, a reverse bigotry?" Yeah, I think there is um, this idea on the part of some that that marriage is now kind of out of reach of the poor, especially. Um, and um, I mean, a, a New York Times, you know, economics writer kind of made that argument, you know, about two years ago. Um, and what I think, of course, it fails to recognize and acknowledge, you know, on the one hand, is that um, today there are many poor Americans, particularly immigrants, to be frank, um, who are stably and happily married. Um, and so they're, they're obviously pointing a path out to the rest of us, you know, that 
indicates that you don't have to be middle class or rich to be successfully married. And we also can point too to the fact that in the heights of the Great Depression in the 1930s, most married couples, you know, managed to to uh, to make it. Lots of strains, lots of stresses, lots of problems, but they managed to maintain their marriages, you know, through a very difficult time economically. At the same time, though, I think we have to acknowledge that you know our family lives depend tremendously on our our social networks, on our friends and family members. And insofar as marriage has broken down, has gotten more fragile in many poor and many working class communities across the U.S., what that means practically is that people don't necessarily have models, you know, in their lives of other couples, you know, of friends and members who have forged a strong and stable marriage. So if we want to kind of revive the fortunes of marriage, you know, in many poor and working class communities across the U.S. and, you know, including South Florida, for instance, or, you know, uh, East uh, D.C. or, you know, um, rural Virginia, um, what we need to do is to figure out ways that uh, churches and other nonprofits um, can put out both a positive message about marriage and life, but, you know, but link that to some real opportunities for people to be uh, mentored and sort of led into reviving marriage in their own in their own social networks and communities. Just dovetailing on this, I and going back to your point about talking with schools, um, this was something I've thought about a lot, which is, you know, this is different than talking about minorities, but I think. Um, it always shocks me that I went through however many years of education, uh, including college, without anybody ever once talking to me about thinking about marriage and how that would integrate with my professional goals. Um, and then, you know, suddenly within a couple of years of graduating from school, you know, so many people um, are in a position where they're wanting to get married. And I think, you know, another sort of needed project is, and this is something I've tried to do both in my own personal life and in my work, is to paint a positive portrayal of marriage for women because I think so many young women, especially those with professional aspirations, are sort of led to believe that it's incompatible with their career. Uh, And that has sort of a a trickle-down effect when, you know, and I see this playing out in the real world in my own life where uh, you know, women are delaying marriage, and then that leads to other complications related to fertility problems, and it sort of creates like a domino cascade of issues when, in fact, marriage, um, and I know you've written a lot, too, about, you know, the timing of marriage and marrying young or marrying later and the effects that has uh, with happiness and earn- income and, and that it's a very sort of complex issue. But um, I do think that, to your point about, A, just sort of talking and thinking about marriage is something that women should be doing a lot sooner than, you know, 28 years old, um, A, and B, surrounding themselves with, and this is something, again, I feel um, fortunate about, uh, surrounding yourself with role models of women who have have happy marriages and have gone on to have children, in many cases, many children. Um, so these are, are just um, some of the many challenges um, that are, are presented in terms of how we convince the culture uh, that marriage is something that's good for men and women and children. 
Yeah, I think in terms of, you know, the issues you've just raised, one key takeaway is that a lot of folks think that 30 is the new 20 um, right. and that 40 is the new 30. And what that means is you can spend your 20s. Um, being a teenager. You know, kind of, yeah, being a teenager, uh, sort of your odyssey years, um, having fun, exploring yourself and kind of just getting situated. And then when you're 29, you can kind of get serious about dating and, and mating and everything else. And the reality, though, is that um, people who get married in their mid-20s kind of broadly defined, um, tend to forge the happiest marriages. They obviously have more kids, and they tend to marry someone who shares their faith. Um, so if things like marital happiness, having, you know, a, a bunch of children and sharing, you know, your faith with your spouse are important, then kind of looking to, to marry in your mid-20s, um, you know, rather than sort of postponing it until you're 30 or, or 35, um, I think makes a lot of sense. And yeah, you're right. We don't really have these conversations, frankly, with um, young adults today. I try to do that in my class at UVA. Um, but I think most young adults are focusing on work and schooling um, in their 20s, not recognizing it's actually a great time to, um, to get serious about you know, finding a spouse uh, as well if they think marriage is in their future. You made me very happy with that response, Dr. Wilcox. I have, I have two older children. My two oldest children are getting married in their early 20s next year. So I'm excited that that's going to spell more success for them. So the music means okay, that we have, to take, <laughs> we have to take a little break, but we'll be right back to talk more with you, Dr. Wilcox, about marriage. Welcome back, friends. This is Conversations with Consequences, and I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Today, I'm joined um, remotely from D.C. I'm in Miami uh, by Ashley McGuire, my uh, colleague at the Catholic Association. And we have a great guest, Dr. Brad Wilcox, who is the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. We've been talking marriage, how important marriage is for the culture, for children, for all that does all sorts of good things for us. Um, and right before the break, Dr. Wilcox, we were talking about um, possible, about ways, uh, how important it is to promote marriage, um, even though maybe it seems, when, when I when I, I was going to mention to you that when I, when I finally convince uh, someone who's more on the liberal side that uh, marriage could be a really great thing, they say, well, the genie's out of the bottle. Nobody's ever going to take marriage back up as the way it used to be. But you did a great study. Um, well, you were involved in a great project, called, um, and, I, and I have the article here, How Baptists and Catholics Together Help Save Thousands of Florida Marriages. And I found it really compelling, and I was hoping you could tell us about it. Yeah, so uh, my colleagues and I uh, released a report about a week and a half ago in Washington um, that basically describes how an initiative sponsored by the Philanthropy Roundtable called the Culture of Freedom Initiative was launched in Jacksonville, Florida. And they launched this in 2016, and within about three years, um, they saw the divorce rate fall by about 20%. Um, and this decline was, was larger than that seen in the state of Florida more generally and the U.S. as well. So as we kind of look at this, um, this initiative, um, we think that the evidence suggests that they really did succeed in bringing divorce down more than it would have come down otherwise. Because as you may or may not know, divorce has been coming down 
um, for a while, actually, especially since the Great Recession. Um, so what this initiative, though, did was it, they had um, churches doing more to preach and teach about marriage. They had an online digital campaign, so they would have people would see like ads and videos, you know, online in terms of Facebook and YouTube and you know, Instagram. They're all kind of sending them more positive messages about marriage and family life. And then they had a number of kind of public offerings too, like they had comedians come into Jacksonville and do date nights for couples and gave them kind of, you know, humorous messages, but also messages that reinforced, um, you know, in, in, in a funny and appropriate way, kind of the value of, of, of forging a stronger marriage, working through difficulties and the like. And so in the wake of these kinds of efforts, um, and they spent, I think, more than $5 million on this initiative over three years, um, you know, we did see the divorce rate come down um, much more in Jacksonville than across uh, the country as a whole. Are there other examples of initiatives that have been successful like this, maybe not on such a large scale that you've encountered? Well, I've seen a similar kind of effort in uh, Chattanooga, Tennessee, with a group called First Things First, where they're also kind of they're producing videos, uh, radio spots, ads on bus stops, um, and offering programmatic activities to help strengthen marriages and relationships for um, people living in the Chattanooga, Tennessee area. So that's another example of a group that's doing this kind of um, this kind of work. Um, and th- in, this in kind these kinds of efforts to promote the culture of marriage can only be done on a private basis, right? Like you can't imagine the government ever investing in a, in a public service campaign on marriage the way they might for uh, anti-smoking campaigns or, right? Because I, I mean, I'm thinking I must, there must be so because um, what is the definition of marriage? If you ask the government, maybe their definition is impossible to promote. Yeah, I think, um, I think that, it would be more difficult for the government to launch a successful marriage campaign, um, particularly one that's sort of trying to do things like promote classes or obviously kind of a more sort of thicker account of marriage, you know, and family life. Um, I do think that we could have some simple messages out from the government that would do things like promote the success sequence. Um, The government does sponsor uh, lots of ads related to fathers that are, I think, generally well done. So I think kind of there's some ways the government can be helpful here. But I think you're right that sort of the the biggest work that can and should be done on this front would be done by um, nonprofits, you know, churches and other groups that can give people a kind of a richer and deeper vision of married life than what Uncle Sam could do for us. You know what I'm experiencing with my older children and, and their their cohorts, the people in the, the young people like them, is that cohabitation is taking in many ways the place of marriage. Uh, for instance, my my daughter is we're, we're we're defining her wedding list, who she's going to invite, and it kept it gets complicated. It used to be that you would invite people and their s- spouses, and now you wonder, do I need to invite everyone people are living with? Are these real? Are these people really in their lives and in a way that a that a married partner, that a married person is, what, what they call now a partner. How do you find, I'm, I'm sure you must know a lot about cohabitation and, and how it's taking the place of marriage. Has, is that a, 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 a very worrying trend? Well, I think cohabitation is, a, is 
you know, is a worrisome trend in the sense that particularly a lot of people are having kids in cohabiting unions. And the problem with that is that, you know, those unions are much less stable uh, than married families. So I think, you know, one of the challenges facing us is really to get people to recognize, to realize, and, um, and, and sort of change their behavior in, in terms of understanding that um, kids are much more likely to flourish when they have two committed parents um, who are committed to one another and to, to going the distance, you know, for, for them as well. And that kind of anchoring commitment is much more likely to be found in a married family than in a cohabiting family. Um, so, you know, what we do to make marriage more, uh, I think, compelling is just to sort of stress both the importance of marriage, um, the important way that marriage gives you know kids stability, but also to get people to realize there's a kind of a successful sequence, too, for dating. And this has been, I think, really developed by a guy named Dr. Scott Stanley um, and a woman named Dr. Galena Rhodes at the University of Denver. And their work suggests that kind of if you if you sequence sort of your dating life in ways that you're kind of moving deliberately, talking through decisions and not sliding through uh, your relationship, um, you're much more likely to forge a good marriage. And part of that is not cohabiting with someone um, on a kind of a casual basis, because that amounts to kind of sliding through a major, um, you know, sequence in your relationship. And they would, they would encourage you to be more decisive about trying to figure out if there's a basis for friendship um, beyond just, you know, physical and, and romantic attraction, um, getting into the character of, you know, of your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, and then, you know, moving towards engagement and marriage. I remember seeing this, the study when it came out, it almost sort of uh, suggested there's two kinds of cohabitation. There's people who are cohabitating, either they're already engaged and planning to get married and they're just trying to save rent money, or people who are like, I don't know where this is going. Um, let's move in together. And another thing I've seen in in uh, your writing research are, that, that's interesting, and I think a lot of people don't realize, and I've, I'm seeing this now play out in the life of someone very close to me, is that um, if you cohabitated um, and had a child before getting married, even if you eventually do get married, you have a, a significantly higher odds of getting divorced. Um, and so there does you know, seem to be some sort of connection between that um, to the point of, of being purposeful and, and following the, the sequence. Shifting topics, the uh, one of the studies that caught our attention was one that I think uh, came out pretty recently. I think you mentioned it in our last segment and seems to have gotten a lot of um, publicity, uh, found that women, uh, the most likely women to be happy in their marriage are religious conservatives. Um, and I was interested to see in the study that actually right behind them are religious progressives. Uh, and then that the most likely or the least likely to be happy were, I believe it was um, secular conservatives. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about the findings of that study and, and uh, you know, what, what, your, what all of it means? So the research indicates that uh, women who share a faith with their husbands um, are markedly happier and they're less likely to get divorced. And we do find that religious conservative women are the happiest wives in America. 
And in terms of making sense of, of those findings, I think there are sort of two things going on here. One is that just sort of having that common faith um, puts you in touch with a network of people, often who are family-oriented. They're kind of there for you in your corner as you're dealing with the, the challenges of marriage um, and family life. The second thing I would say is that people who have a, a faith are more likely to handle life's difficulties, things like the loss of a loved one or unemployment, um, successfully because they have this view that God is in their lives and working with them and, and, and sort of accompanying them in the midst of their struggles and tribulations. And there's also a way in which faith is, is linked to stronger um, norms about things like fidelity and forgiveness, which are helpful for marriage as well. And I think conservative religious women are especially likely to be flourishing because they're more likely to have a strong sense of commitment to marriage and to appreciate that women and men are different. And that appreciation uh, for male and female difference allows them to navigate um, relationships and family life more successfully, more successfully just because they don't expect that their husbands are going to be just like their girlfriends or sisters um, <laughs> and makes them more adept at navigating the challenges of a marital relationship because they appreciate that men are, you know, are a bit different. And, um, you know, so when the, when the husband kind of like shuts down in the face of, of a conflict or retreats to his study or his garage, you know, I think that's less threatening for a more conservative minded woman than it is for a more progressive woman, because she's probably more likely to understand and appreciate that, you know, guys actually handle conflict uh, differently than women on average. And, you know, so these kinds of sex differences are not as, you know, threatening um, to their sense of the marriage and where it's headed. But so accepting... Also that secu- go ahead. Go ahead, Dr. Rokos. Yeah. So, so it's, yeah, accepting those differences is kind of like par for the course. Um, but I think what's interesting, too, is that secular conservative women are the least, uh, the least happy. And I think what's perhaps happening there is that guys who have a traditional mindset but don't kind of link it to an ethic of service or don't link it to uh, a real commitment to their family um, are, I I suspect, just not very um, good husbands these days. They're just probably not as emotionally and practically engaged in the marriage and in the life of the family, whereas I think that religiously conservative men, you know, have both a personal sense that their marriage and family is important, and they're getting encouraged by their friends and, and their pastor or their priest, you know, to um, to be intentional about um, being good husbands and good fathers in ways that, you know, redound to the benefit of um, their spouse and children. And maybe also the secular conservative women don't have the, the, the philosophy of religious women uh, in order to make sense of these sex differences and the complementarity. They don't have that help, no? Uh, of, of our philosophies. Yeah, that's certainly, I think, a possibility. Um, but I, I, my, yeah, my intuition here is that um, kind of a, a secular conservatism often can give men a kind of permission slip for doing the minimum. And <laughs> that, you know... As is, though they needed that. Not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Well, you do. I read this article. You, you wrote an article, Religious Men Can Be Devoted Dads Too, which I think is to this point. Um, because, uh, well, the point of the article was that uh, liberal, the, the idea is that liberal marriages, people think that liberal marriages were that are egalitarian, right, where the men and women believe that they should split everything 
the same, that men should come home and clean after work, um, that that those would have above average satisfaction, that the women would be very happy in those in those um, in those marriages. But the fact is, is that religious dads, religious men um, also find and what you just mentioned, that that sense of service to their to their spouse and to their children, a very good reason um, to be that helping hand, those helping hands for for an overworked mom. Right. It's important to know. I think that we see, you know, religious, religiously conservative dads um, tend to be more engaged with their kids, um, as well as more egalitarian-minded dads, uh, where the difference is, is that egalitarian men are more likely to share housework, and religious dads are more likely to focus on on breadwinning. Um, so there's a kind of a, a different way in which they think they're supporting their families by either focusing more on housework on the part of the progressive dads, or focusing more on giving their families, you know, more financial support on the part of the religious dads. But what they share in common is being more practical and emotionally engaged with their wives and uh, with with the kids on well, evenings and weekends. Well, that does sound like a recipe for happiness. I can say, as the mom of five, <laughs> an engaged dad is a wonderful thing. Um, yeah, you know, I <laughs> I noticed from just reading your work, reading all your different uh, projects. Um, that you must be working with all sorts of different kinds of people. You must have a lot of secular researchers that work with you. What's what's it like working with somebody, with people who are completely secular and looking at the same data? Do you find yourselves coming to different conclusions? Yeah, well, one of the things that I um, have experienced is working with uh, a colleagues, sorry, working with colleagues, including Nick Wolfinger at the University of Utah, who are, you know, more, pro- more progressive, uh, secular, whatever else it might be. Um, compared to where I sort of sit, I look at the world. And um, a point of common ground for us is kind of our commitment to kind of just basically running the regressions and sort of seeing where the numbers fall. Um, And there are some things that you can't really um, adjudicate by, you know, running a statistical regression. You know, there, there are sort of subtle arguments you can make about culture, for instance, that you can't really you know, kind of build a data set and um, mm-hmm. and then just run the numbers and, and get the answer you might be looking for. Um, I think, for instance, of what happened in the 1960s in terms of dramatic increases in single motherhood, um, conservatives would sort of stress welfare policy um, or cultural shifts. Liberals would talk about economic changes. And you know, not all mm-hmm. these things can easily be adjudicated by a data set or a couple of data sets. But there are some kind of concrete, you know, topics that Nick and I have tackled, um, looking at the link between religion and relationship happiness for blacks, Latinos, and whites. And, you know, Nick runs the numbers, and it's pretty clear that people who are religious are about 10 percentage points more likely to be happy in their relationships. And so given the finding, Nick just, you know, reports that with me. And so that's sort of a, you know, the basis for our our, our collaboration is a kind of a, a joint commitment to sort of following the data wherever it shall lead. So there are people out there like that, and, and I can work easily with them. Well, Dr. Wilcox, I'm really glad that you're following the data, and I think that you are providing some really important information and in, in, in ha- what has to be the most important topic of our day, right? The marriage and, and family. So thank you so much for joining us. Where can our guests, where can our listeners uh, find more about your work? Uh, FamilyStudies.org, and I'm on Twitter at uh, WilcoxNMP. 
Oh, well, I'll be following you right now. And thank you, Dr. Wilcox. Uh, next up, we have uh, Father La uh, Roger Landry joining us for his weekly um, homily that he's so kind as to give us. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily, new, our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. This week, as is customary, Father Roger Landry gives us a short but brilliant homily on this coming Sunday's Gospel. Please stay tuned for Father Landry, and do look up his daily homily, written in audio, on his website, catholicpreaching.com. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with all of us this Sunday. Last week, you remember, Jesus presented us the parable of the prayer of the Pharisee and the publican, both of whom had gone up to the temple to pray, and both left, but only one's prayer was heard. The one who left justified was not the outwardly devout Pharisee who fasted twice a week, gave 10% of his income back to God, and rejoiced that he was not a thief, rogue, adulterer, or tax collector. The one who left with a right relationship toward God was a humble publican, stood at the back, beat his breast, and begged, God be merciful to me, a sinner. In the gospel we will encounter this Sunday, we encounter those characters from the parable, self-righteous good people who complain that Jesus actually interacts with sinners, and a notorious humble tax collector in real life. And we see how the God-man responds when such a sinner calls out to him for mercy. Jesus called himself the Good Shepherd and said that he would leave the 99 to go in search of the one sheep who was lost. Before that Good Shepherd headed up to Jerusalem to lay down his life for sheep, first wanted to hunt down one who was lost. He went to literally the nethermost place on earth in search of perhaps the greatest public sinner of that city to bring him back to his fold. He went to Jericho, the lowest city on the planet, 853 feet below sea level, to find Zacchaeus, who's not just one of a bunch of despised and excommunicated tax collectors loathsome to the Jewish authorities, but the chief tax collector of the whole region. Jesus left the crowds behind and entered alone with the tax collector into his home and into his life. He called Zacchaeus his lost sheep by name. The very name Zacchaeus means God remembers, and God had never forgotten him. Heaven rejoiced on that day more for his return than for those who had never wandered. So Jesus takes the initiative of knocking at the door of our soul, asking for entry, coming to us wherever we are, no matter the depths to which we've sunk, no matter the fact that perhaps everyone else around us might despise us. To the extent that we, like Zacchaeus, repent of whatever sins we've committed and accept Jesus' gracious invitation by welcoming him with delight, we too, like Zacchaeus, can have salvation come to us. This is the first of the three lessons we learn from the story of Zacchaeus and Jesus, that Jesus wants to take us apart from the crowd and bring us the salvation of his mercy. The place where Jesus ordinarily does this is where St. John Paul II used to say, Jesus and the whole church exist solely for each one of us alone, the confessional. The sacrament of confession, Jesus ministers to us individually, just as he interacted individually with Zacchaeus. But like Zacchaeus, we need to come down to leave the purchase of our pride and allow Jesus to work through his priestly ministers. Second thing we learn from this encounter with Zacchaeus is about the diminutive tax collector's hunger to see Jesus. Zacchaeus' climbing of the sycamore tree is more than an interesting detail. The text tells us 
He was trying to see Jesus, but couldn't because of the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a tree along Jesus' route in order to have a chance to glance at him. We too are often blocked from seeing the Lord because other people get in the way. They block our sight in many ways. Parents block the sight of their children when they don't pray with them or take them to Mass. Cultural forces like those in the entertainment industry or in public schools or institutions of higher learning impede our vision by distorting Jesus' image, ignoring him altogether, or ridiculing those who believe in him. Sometimes even those who should be icons of Jesus, priests, religious, catechists, godparents, obscure our vision because rather than reflecting the image of Jesus to us through virtue, they obstruct it through unchristian behavior. Zacchaeus' example challenges each of us to consider what is the extent to which we go, what trees or obstacles we'll mount in order to see Jesus more clearly. The third thing this episode with Zacchaeus teaches us is that a true conversion to God also brings about a real conversion to others. Even though he, like his fellow tax collectors, would have been guilty of ripping off the people of Jericho by basically shaking them down for unjust commissions beyond what the tax collectors needed to send to Rome. Zacchaeus knew that he needed to make amends. From that point forward, he used the gift of his office to do good rather than evil. So he told Jesus, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I'll give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay it back four times as much. Strict justice would have required his giving back precisely what he had overcharged. If he had really wanted to be kind, he would have given it back with interest. But he was going to give it back with 400% interest, which was a sign of great contrition for the gravity of his previous sins of stealing and intimidation. Similarly, we're called to examine our consciences and to make amends with those we've injured through our sins. We need to apologize, to repair the harm we've caused through gossip, for example, to make restitution for the things we've stolen from family members or work or from strangers or from the poor through our selfishness. And we need to do so extravagantly. At Mass this Sunday, we'll see just how extravagant Jesus can be. When he knew that we and the whole human race were incapable of seeing him on account of the great weight of sin that was reducing our humanity to smaller images of what we're called to be. And thereby, when we were incapable of climbing any tree at all, he, out of his great love for us, climbed a tree on our own behalf so that each of us might be able to see him perched upon his glorious wooden throne. He who comes to seek and save what was lost will call each of us by name and say to us from the cross, I must stay in your house today. He will invite us to be lifted up by him onto the life-giving cruciform tree so that as God's children we might spend eternity in that celestial treehouse built upon the cross's firm foundation. And then in Eucharistic form, he will come to stay with us all day. Let's get ready. God bless you. Thank you so much, Father Landry. It's so kind of you to join us every week to give us that beautiful homily to prepare us for this Sunday's gospel. Um, now it's time to say goodbye. Unfortunately, we've had a great show. Thank you so much, Ashley, for joining me um, all the way from D.C. Thank you for making time. Yeah, it was a treat. It's always um, a delight to talk to somebody like Brad, who is just a wealth of uh, information on on such an important issue. You know, I really feel that he uh, that all this data that he's collecting and the way that he's putting it out there in, in important public, you know, in, in, in mainstream publications uh, is, is going to have a real impact on the way that uh, if we are ever going to recapture marriage, if we're ever going to, to reignite marriage in our culture. 
So it was really good of him to join us. This is your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie of the Catholic Association, um, joined today by my colleague Ashley McGuire and our great guest, Dr. Brad Wilcox. If you've been listening on the radio, thank you for listening to Conversations with Consequences on the Guadalupe Radio Network on 11 a.m. on Fridays. Be sure to subscribe to our podcasts. You can go to the catholicassociation.org to subscribe for free. Thank you, and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs>